Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. For all of you who are here in person, good to see all of you. More and more of you coming back. And those of you who are out in, in, under the tent, welcome. And for those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad that you're here. I want to just jump right in today and read a great little story that Jesus told. And any story he told is a great story. So I'm going to just read it to you. You don't need to turn to your Bibles for this one. I just want you to listen up. It comes from Matthew 20, and I'm going to read it in the contemporary English version translation. I think it gives a real flavor of what the story's all about. Okay, and here, here it goes. As Jesus was telling what the kingdom of heaven would be like, he said, early one morning, a man went out to hire some workers for his vineyard. After he had agreed to pay them the usual amount for a day's work, he sent them off to his vineyard. About nine that morning, the man saw some other people standing in the market with nothing to do, and he said he would pay them what was fair and if they would work in his vineyard. And so they went. At noon again, about three in the, and again about three in the afternoon, he returned to the market, and each time he made the same agreement with others who were loafing around with nothing to do. Finally, about five in the afternoon, the man went back and found some others standing there, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Then he told them to go to work in his vineyard. That evening, the owner of the vineyard told the man in charge of the, of the uh, workers to call them in and give them their money. He also told the man to, to begin with the ones who were hired last. And when the workers arrived, the ones who had been hired at five in the afternoon were given a full day's pay. And the workers who had been hired first thought they would be given more than the others. But when they were given the same amount, they began complaining to the owner of the vineyard. And they said, the ones who were hired last worked for only one hour, but you paid them the same that you did us, and we worked in the hot sun all day long. The owner answered one of them, friend, I didn't cheat you. I paid you exactly what we agreed on. Take your money now and go. What business is it of yours if I want to pay them the same that I paid you? Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Why should you be jealous if I want to be generous? And then Jesus said, so it is. Everyone who is now first will be last, and everyone who is last will be first. You get the gist of that story? It's a cool story. Um, the guy needed some workers. He needed some help for his vineyard. And so he found some workers for his vineyard, and he told them that he would pay them a full day's wage. Now, a typical day back then began at 6 in the morning until 6 in the evening. So 12 hours is what they worked. That was an average work day. They worked for 12 hours. And so he probably hired this first batch of workers right at the crack of dawn, probably around 6 o'clock, maybe 5.36, and they went to work. Right? And around 9 a.m., he went to the market, saw a bunch of guys just hanging out, and he said, hey, would you like to work? A full day's wage. I'll give you a full day's wage. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'd love to work. And so they went to work, and they worked. And then he went back to the, uh, then he went back to the market around noon, and then again at 3 o'clock, found some more workers just standing around and said, hey, would you guys like to work? He says, I'll pay you a full day's wage. And they said, yeah, we'd love to work. And so they went to work. And then he went back to the market one more time at 5 p.m., Saw some guys standing there, said, hey, would you like to work? I'll pay you a full day's wage. Said, yeah, are you kidding me? One hour work for a full day? We're in. And so they went to work. And when the guy, when the manager, the supervisor showed up to pay all the workers, I mean, can you imagine the uproar? I mean, they were just, the workers had been there for all day long. Got the same amount as the guy that was there for only an hour. And, and they were furious. I mean, they, you know, they were just outraged. So let me tell you another story, all right? Uh, this one was told by Denise Banderman, who was a student at Hannibal LaGrange University in Hannibal, Missouri. It took, back in, took place back in 2002. It's a true story. All right, it was, it was uh, exam day, final exam day. And uh, 
It, Denise said she walked into the classroom a few minutes early and she, saw, she said that there were the other students were there already and they were, they were all cramming for their test because it was the big, big exam. And she said uh, the professor arrived right on time and when he arrived, he got the exam and he, and he went and, and he placed the exam face down in front of all the students on their desk, he placed it face down. And then he told, um, then he grabbed his te the textbook and he said, okay, oh, hey, this is your textbook and you are responsible to know what's inside of it, what's in it on this exam. And Denise said, oh, when he said that, she says the chill just ran down my spine like I'm, I'm, I'm cooked. This is it, right? This, I'm dead. And then he said, okay, class, you may now turn over your exam and begin. And she said when she flipped over her exam, her exam she was shocked at what she found. She said, I, she said, quote, I couldn't believe it to my astonishment. Every answer on the test was filled in, and my name was even written on the exam in red ink. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the class, she said, started to stir. And as, as each of the students looked at their exam, their completed exam in total bewilderment. And then on the bottom of the last page of every exam was this note from the professor. He wrote, quote, all the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test, that was him, took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for the test did not help you get the A. Isn't that great? <laughs> what a great story. I wish I had that professor at Pepperdine. Where was he, right? What an amazing story. You know what the two stories have in common that I just read to you? What they have in common is that the owner of the vineyard and the professor of the class both demonstrated a remarkable goodness to their workers and to their students. And they had every right to do so. They demonstrated a remarkable goodness. You know, for the last three weeks, we've been in a series here called The Great Revealer, in which we've been looking at some of the things that the pandemic has revealed to us, what it has shown us. And today I want to unpack one more truth that it has shown us, and that is the remarkable goodness of God. Yeah, believe it or not, it might be counterintuitive to think that the pandemic has revealed the goodness of God, but I, but I believe that it has. And frankly, it wasn't until I saw a YouTube video about a month ago of my favorite gospel singer, C.C. Winans, that I came to realize how good God has been. Because in this video, she sang about the goodness of God, and it moved me to tears. It stirred my soul. And, and so I asked the worship team to sing it for us. They're going to be singing at the end of the message. But my prayer and hope is that you too will be reminded of the goodness of God today through what you hear. Now, so grab your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, Matthew, number Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So open to Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can open up our app, South Bay Community Church app. You can get it at the, at the Play Store if you need it. And then um, I want to begin by uh, opening our time in a word of prayer. And I just want to ask you, I have a prayer request. Um, I just heard this morning, uh, well, I, yeah, I heard this morning that, as you may know, COVID really uh, ravaged India recently. I mean, it was just horrible. And but one of our members, uh, Bimla, who is who is from India, told me this morning that that many pastors have died from COVID. Many pastors there. In fact, and the reason why she told me that was because I told her that we have a friend. His name is Pastor Alok, 
And uh, he was here for about several years ago. I think it was, well, actually it was about five years ago. He spent about two months here at our church. And uh, I just found out recently that about a month ago, he went home to be with the Lord. And, his and this is all because of COVID. And his daughter was uh, struggling with COVID. In fact, I heard from his wife just the other day that they are really struggling. They're really, I mean, I can't imagine. So, so India's not just been devastated by this terrible disease, but it's affected the, the churches. They're, many of them are without any leaders now. So let's, let's keep them in prayer as well, okay? Let's, let's pray for them that God would do um, his work, that he'll have his way. Uh, even in, in the midst of this crisis, and that they'll see the goodness of God. All right, let's pray. Father, it's hard to imagine that even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of heartbreak, that you are still good. And Lord, I believe that with all my heart, that that is true. Father, this morning as we, as we hear of the reports of what's been happening in India. I had no idea that so many pastors have died uh, here in the last few months, Father, including a friend, Pastor Alok. Father, we, we just pray for India, God, that for all, and for all those churches who have lost their leaders. Father, will you, will you show them your goodness? Will you provide for them? Will you give them leaders? Will you help them to heal? Father, will you strengthen the churches there that the people of India will come to know you? And Father, I pray for Pastor Lok's family, for his wife, Roma, and for their daughter who is now sick. We pray, God, for her complete healing and recovery. And Father, make a way where there's no way for them. You're the miracle worker. Do a miracle. And Father, bring the gospel to India in a great way. And Father, this morning for all of us, COVID has been, this pandemic has been devastating for some here in our church. And I pray, Father, that, that you would open our eyes to see that even in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of trouble, you are good. You truly are. So thank you, Father. Speak to us about this. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, there was a wonderful man who attended our church. His name was Julio Lozano. This is Julio right here. He was the grandfather of Scott, Kyle, and Corey Hamada. And I had the privilege of baptizing Julio about 16 years ago when he was 76 years old. And uh, I, was, I baptized him with his son-in-law, Dave, who is uh, Scott, Kyle, and Corey's dad. And uh, a few years after he was baptized, Julio became ill. And after a while, after his bout with this illness, uh, we were told that he didn't have long to live. And so one day, he asked me to come and visit him at the hospital. And so I did. And I'll never forget it because he was, he was in good spirits. He was full of faith. And, and then while I was there, he pointed his finger up. And I'll never forget this, but he pointed his finger up and he says, I'm going to see Jesus very soon. I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to see Jovita who was his, who his wife, who had gone to be with the Lord uh, a few years earlier. He said, I'm going to be with Jesus very, very soon, and I want you to have my Cadillac. <laughs> you see, uh, Julio had this beautiful, um, deep red Cadillac DeVille. It looked just like this. I mean, it looked just like this. And I remember seeing him at the gas station one time, 
And I thought, whoa, that's a beautiful car you have there. You know, and, and uh, anyway, so he said, yeah, I want you to have my Cadillac. And, uh, you know, this car, it was sick. I mean, you know, like for those of you old people, that's the new f- terminology of young people. They call things sick when it's cool. We think that when you're sick, it's sick, right? It's like you're not feeling well. But sick is a new word. It means cool. But it, that thing was sick, right? And, um, and no one, I mean, I was flabbergasted because no one had ever given me a car before. And I said to him, oh, thank you so much, Julio. But no, I don't, I, you know, no, don't give me your car. Don't give me your car. He says, no, I want to give you my car. I says, no, don't give me your car. He says, no, 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 I'm going to give you my car. I said, Julio, give it, give it to Scott because he's going to be driving soon. He was, I think Scott was 15 years old at the time. He said, Scott will not want to drive my car to school. He says, I, can, I promise you that. He says, I want you to have my car. And I said, no, no, no. And finally, his daughter, Michelle, chimed in, and she says, you better just accept it because he's not going to take no for an answer. I said, okay. So I said, thank you so much. I accepted his gift graciously. I was overwhelmed, and I wondered, why me? Why would he, you know, of all the people that he can give his car to, why would he give it to me? And so when I finally received the car, when I drove the car for the very first time, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, what a ride. I mean, it just, it rode so heavy, right? I'd never driven a Cadillac before, let alone been in one. It was so heavy. The interior, I mean, it was so, it was spacious. It was detailed with this mahogany wood trimming and, and then it had that plush leather seating. It was amazing. And I loved driving the Cadillac. I loved driving, except I was a little bit nervous about driving it I was nervous about driving at the church, which I did a few times because I didn't want anyone to think that I'd become a television evangelist. But uh, seriously, I couldn't get over Julio's goodness to me. I couldn't get over that. And, and uh, there was no way that I could have, no way I could have ever gotten this car on my own. There's just no way I could have afforded it to, to buy a Cadillac like that. Let me ask you something. Has anyone ever given you something that you couldn't have gotten on your own? Has anyone ever given you something you couldn't have gotten on your own? Probably. Well, as you may know, much of the Bible is the story of God's relationship with his people, the Jews. It's, a, it's about his relationship with the people, the Jews. Early on, early on, he gave the Jews something that they couldn't have gotten on their own. And that was a personal relationship with him. He gave them a personal relationship and they couldn't have gotten it on their own. God gave that to him. And, he, and he, in other words, he chose them. God chose them to be his people. Take a look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. The first verse, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. It says here, and, and this is God speaking, for you are a holy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? Out of all the peoples on the, on the face of the on planet earth, he chose the Jews to be his treasured possession, to be his people. And why did he choose them over everybody else? Why did he choose them and not somebody else? The next verse tells us, verse 7 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose the Jews to be his people? It wasn't because of merit. It wasn't because they brought something to the table. It, was something, it wasn't because they had something to give back to him. He chose them just because. He chose them just because he loved them. You know, when I heard C.C. Winans' song, it reminded me that I'm a Christ follower today simply because 
God chose me. That's the only reason. God chose me to be his child. I mean, I've mentioned this before in the past that the Bible passage that I selected many, many years ago to be my life's verse was John 15, 16. I'll put it up here for you. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, in, in the name of the Father, he may give to you. And I love this, the phrase, the first phrase in this verse. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I'm a child of God, not because I chose him. I'm a child of God because he chose me. And the same is true for you. Same is true for all of you. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you decided to become a Christian. You're a Christian today because God chose you to be one. So turn to someone right next to you and say, God chose me. Turn to them and say, God chose me. Right? And how did God choose us? Here's how God chose us. Yeah, it's amazing, right, Mark? How did he choose us? First of all, he drew us to himself. He drew us to himself. John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, God drew us. When I was invited to 10 Pepperdine, I knew that the, the church was affiliated I knew that the university was affiliated with the Church of Christ. And so before I got there, and this is true, before I got there, I resolved that I was not going to become a Christian. I, I, I knew that I had to take Bible classes, and I resolved I am not going to become a Christian. I was born in a Buddhist home. I'm, an, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not going to become a Christian. And then when I got there, st some strange things started to happen. Some very strange things started to happen. I found myself, first of all, surrounded by all these students who were Christ followers. And they were pretty cool people. I mean, they were really neat people. They were really kind, nice people. And for whatever reason, all of a sudden, I wanted to know about God. I, I wanted to know about who this Jesus was that they were talking about. I wanted to know what the Bible was. And I'd seen the Bible when my parents, when I would go to Vegas, and I would see it in the commode by the bed, right? And it was a King James, and I'd open up, and I'd go, what is this? And I'd put it back, and I'd forget this, man, right? But I, now, for the first time in my life, I wanted to know who Jesus was. And I wanted to know what the Bible was all about and what it had to say. See, in retrospect, as I look back, God was drawing me. He was drawing me to himself. And then one day, one day I came to believe in him. And that squares with John uh, 6, 65, in which Jesus said, take a look at it. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Almighty God one day granted me access to him. He allowed me to come to him and to believe in him. He allowed me to become a Christ follower. It was all his doing. And it had nothing to do with me. It was all his doing. That's why the Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.29. He said, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And this tells us that God granted us the ability to believe. So if you believe, if you're a Christ follower today, it's because God has done a work in you. He drew you and he granted you the right to believe. It is all because of him. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, the next verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. 
You see, faith is not your own doing. Faith is a gift of God. So if you believe, it's because God gave you the gift of faith to believe. God gave you the gift of faith to believe. Which means, again, if you're a Christian, it's only because God gave you that gift. And this is mind-boggling. This is mind-boggling to me. I mean, there's no question that we all have a, we have a role to play, right? We all have to make a conscious decision to receive Christ and believe in him. But at the end of the day, if you do believe, it's because God gave you the faith to believe. Now, some people will react to this teaching by asking, well, why does God give faith to some? If it's all about God, if it's God, then why did he give faith to some and why doesn't he give faith, to, why doesn't he give it to others? Why, did, why does he do that? And the answer is, the answer is, I don't know. Right? I don't know the answer. Why, why would God allow some to, to believe in him and why he doesn't allow others to believe in him? I don't know the answer to that, but, but, I, but I also know this. Because we don't know who is chosen and who is not chosen, it behooves us to share our faith with others. Right? We need to tell others because we don't know. The person, your neighbors, your whole neighborhood might all be destined to know Christ, but, it's, but we don't know. But they won't know if we don't tell them about Jesus. And that's why one of, the, one of the things that one of our mission is to tell people about Jesus. We gotta constantly share our faith and tell people about Jesus. You know, I think that instead of asking the question, why does God give faith to some and not to others? I think I prefer to, to ask this question, why me? God, why did you choose me? Or I, I prefer to make this declaration. I can't believe you chose me. God, I can't believe you allowed me to come to know you. I, I can't believe that you, you allowed me to know that you love me. I can't believe that you, you saved me from my sins. I can't believe that you forgive me of my sins. I can't believe that you rescued me from my, this messed up broken life that I have. I can't believe that you gave me the gift of eternal life. I mean, have you ever said those things to God? Have you ever wondered that? Why me? Why am I a Christian? Why do I get to know Jesus? Why do I get to, to go to heaven? You, you ought to ask those things. You ought to ask those things. Because, and remember, however it is that you came to know Christ, it's only because of the sovereign work of God's grace in your life. He chose you. And all this is nothing less than the remarkable goodness of God. You can write that one down. By the goodness of God, he chose me. He chose you. You know, Roger and Becky Zerby, I'm going to tell you about them, were, were a typical uh, married couple. They loved each other, and they had their struggles. And like many couples, one of the things they struggle with is communication, right? Communication is a tough one for, for, for most couples. And uh, one day, Becky uh, struck up an idea. She, she decided to write Roger a letter in her, in her journal, and so she wrote him a letter in her journal, and she left it on his pillow. And she was so pleased because when she was getting ready to go to bed that night, she, uh, she was surprised to find her journal on her pillow. When she opened it up, she found that Roger replied to her letter, and he wrote her a letter back. And that was the beginning of an 18-year interactive journaling thing with them that just transformed their relationship as they began to communicate by writing these love letters to one another. Well, one day, um, Roger was diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's, which is, an, which is a form of Alzheimer's that afflicts people under the age of 65. On one occasion, Roger was having a really difficult day, and 
he wrote this in Becky's journal. He wrote, Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life we share will be gone. In fact, you and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I am surrounded by you and your love. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and painfully. And, yeah, and painfully. Blinking back tears, Becky wrote one of the most poignant and stirring letters I've ever read. Here's what she wrote. My sweet husband, what will happen when we get to the point where you no longer know me? I will continue, continue to go on loving you and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me he loved me. The look on his face when his children were born and the father he was. The way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for writing, hiking, and reading. His tears at sentimental movies. The unexpected witty remarks and how he held my hand while we prayed. I cherish the pleasure, obligation, commitment, and opportunity to care for you because I remember you. What an amazing letter. You know, as I mentioned a moment ago, much of the Bible is the story of God's people, is the story of God's relationship with his people, the Jews. You might remember that after they were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, they escaped and went in search of the promised land. Getting there wasn't easy. After God parted the Red Sea for them, they found themselves in the Sinai Desert and it was not a pretty picture as there was no food, it was, there was no water, there was no shelter. And the place was a wasteland. The Sinai Desert was a wasteland. And yet, the Jews, the scriptures tell us that the Jews lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter two. Just flip five pages over to the left. Deuteronomy two, verse seven says, and for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through, the, through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Oh, what, an, what an incredible statement. They lack nothing. Uh, what, they went through this whole desert thing for 40 years. They lack nothing. Why did they lack nothing? It was because God remembered them. God remembered them. Even when you're going through tough times, God remembers you. Just as Becky told her husband Roger that she would remember him. There's another verse that reminds us that God remembered them. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go back six chapters in the front or forward. It says, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell in these 40 years. What a, this is sick. You know, I think that's my new favorite word. This is sick. I mean, their clothes didn't wear out on them. I mean, the clothes that they wore when they arrived were the same clothes that they wore when they left the place 40 years later. How does that happen? God remembered them. I mean, they would have put Ross dress for less out of business because they wore the same things over and over and over. Who wears the same things over and over and over? They did. Because God remembered them. He remembered to take care of them. He remembered to provide for them. He remembered to protect them. He remembered that, that they were his people even during the tough times. You know, the word that the Bible uses to describe this idea that God remembers us 
is the word faithful or faithfulness. If you take a look at Deuteronomy 7, 9 again, focus on the last line. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. There's faithful God and he, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So you might want to circle that in your Bible. To a thousand generations. It says that God is faithful to a thousand generations. A thousand generations here is a proverbial expression which means endlessly or it means forever. And thus, this means that God is endlessly faithful. He is forever faithful. That's God, endlessly faithful. And here's what I want you to remember. God's faithfulness isn't defined by whether or not we think that he came through for us in our hour of need. No, 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 no. God's faithfulness is regardless of whether things turn out the way we want them to turn out. God is faithful simply because that's who he is. God is faithful. God is faithful to his character. God is faithful to his word. And God is faithful to his people. He remembers us. He remembers you. He has not forgotten you. And this, too, is nothing less than the reflection of his goodness. Because God is good, he remembers us. You can write that one down. Because, because God is good, he remembers us. And we saw this throughout the pandemic. We saw this, I saw this, our staff saw this, and I believe you saw this. In times of darkness, he led us. When we were afraid, he held our hands. When we felt alone, he was always there. Some of you were in the hospital all alone. Well, no, 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 you weren't. God was always there. When we grieved, he comforted us. You see, by his goodness, he provides for us. By his goodness, he cares for us. And we saw that over and over again throughout this pandemic. And I believe that you did too, because I, I heard from you. And you told me in, in the hardest, the, the most difficult times of your life, you knew that God was there. And that's because God never forgets. He always remembers you. You might recognize this man right here, Babe Ruth. This man that's considered the greatest baseball player of all time. And there's been a lot of talk about him lately because another player has come along uh, who can actually, who might even be better than him. He was, however, the great Bambino. He was the Sultan of Swat. And then his life turned on a dime. Turned on a dime. In one of his last games against the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, it really came through. He, he began to falter, and he struck out every time he went up there, and he committed a bunch of errors that allowed in one inning for the Cincinnati Reds to score five runs. And when the inning was finally over, he walked off the field with his dejected with his head held low, and just as he got to the dugout, um, just as he was getting to the dugout, I mean, there was just a chorus of boos. I mean, the, the place... Yankee Stadium just rang out with boos as, the, as people just let him have it. The cat calls and the boos, uh, they just let him have it. This for a man who led his team to four World Series championships. And now he was despised and rejected. Just as he was about to enter the dugout, a little boy jumped over the railing and with tears streaming down his cheeks, because of what he heard, he ran to Babe Ruth and threw his arms around his legs and he wouldn't let him go. 
Babe Ruth scooped up the little boy, gave him a hug, and then set him down again, and then walked him over to where he jumped over and put him over the railing so that he can get back to his seat. It was an unforgettable scene of mercy shown by a little boy against the backdrop of tens of thousands of people screaming and jeering at him. You know, after the Jews wandered in the Sinai Desert, the book of Numbers tells us that they grew impatient and they grew critical and they started to boo God, if you want to call it that, just like those Yankee fans. Numbers, I hope there aren't any Yankee fans here. Um, Numbers 21.5. Take a look at this. If you want to look at Numbers, it's the book right before Deuteronomy. But Numbers 21 verse 5 says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Well, first of all, they were the ones that wanted to get out of Egypt, right? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. There's no food and water, but God gave them food and they didn't like it. Instead of appreciating God for all that he had done for them, instead of being grateful for his faithfulness, they let God have it. And they let their leader Moses have it. They didn't like, they were mad. And, they didn't, and, and, and God wasn't about to take it. God had had it with them. So here's what God did. Take a look at verse 6. And then it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So God didn't like them complaining so much. I mean, he had had it with them. And so he sent these fiery snakes, these, these venomous snakes into the desert to bite them. And when they bit them, they died. Now, he did this to punish the people people, the Jews, for their lack of faith, for not trusting him. And the snakes actually did their job because the Jews started to come to their senses and they began to, began to make a 180 degree turnaround. They realized the wrong that they committed against God. Take a look at verse 7. And it says, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This is great. They actually got it. They turned around. And the snakes did their job. And they got, got, God's, they got their attention. God got their attention. But God didn't take away the snakes. He decided to leave the snakes there. Why did God leave the snakes there instead of taking them? Well, they hurt you. You know, you punished them. They, they got the lesson. Take them out. No, no, no. God, first of all, God left the snakes there for a reason. First, so that they would always remember, the Jews would always remember that there are consequences to sin. Second, he left them there because God wanted, it, it was a reminder every time he saw a snake, remember, stop complaining, all right? Stop complaining, stop being so critical, stop being so ungrateful. Now, the problem is, when you have the snakes around, the problem is people would continue to get bit and people would continue to die. And God didn't want that to happen, so here's what he did. Take a look at verse eight. And the, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is crazy. God instructed Moses 
to make a bronze snake and set it on a pole. It might have looked like this. Make a bronze snake and set it on a pole. And then whenever someone was bitten by the snake, all they needed to do was look at that bronze snake and they would be healed. It was crazy. This is, this is sick, right? This is sick. Because it meant that no one had to die. No one had to die. It was also a reminder that if they didn't want to die, they had to have faith. They had to believe that this really worked. That if, if you got bit and you're starting to, you know, foam at the mouth and you're getting sick, they had to believe that what God said was true, that all they needed to do was look at this bronze snake and they would be healed. It was a reminder that they need to trust God. So this is such a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story because in it we get a, we get a glimpse into God's heart. We get a glimpse into his heart. See, even though the people sinned against him, even though they complained, even though they went after their leader Moses, God didn't wipe them out. He didn't kill them all. He didn't leave all the snakes there to let them all die. No, no, no. He, he showed them mercy. Just like that little boy showed Babe Ruth mercy. If you look at Deuteronomy 7, 9 again, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Notice that steadfast love. That the Hebrew word for steadfast love there is actually kesed, and it means mercy. It doesn't mean steadfast love. It, mean, it actually means mercy. And I don't know why they don't just write what it means, but they did in the King James Version. The New King James Version translates the verse probably the best of all. It says, therefore, know that the Lord your God is God. He's your, your God. He is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant mercy. He keeps his covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. So there it is right there. So God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of mercy, and his mercies never fail. Mercies never fail. His mercy is there, and his mercy is nothing less than a reflection of God's goodness. And you can write that one out. It's by the goodness of God that his mercies never fail us. His mercies never fail you. And which means, I don't know about you, you know, but I can't begin to count the number of times that I have failed God. I lost count. Early on in my Christian life, I lost count of the number of times that I'd sinned against God. I lost count of the times that I turned my back on God. I mean, there were times in my life when I wasn't even walking with God. I can't tell you the number of times I've sinned against God, and sometimes I commit the same sin over and over again, you know, and I think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sin anymore, and then, I, and then I sin again, and I sin again, sometimes on the same day, and, and the next day, and the next day, and sometimes it's the same sin over and over and over again, and every time I blow it, you know what God does? He shows me his mercy. God is so merciful, and that's the goodness of God. I hope that this week you'll take some time to reflect. Do it today. Do it this week. Reflect on the goodness of God. How has God been good to you? God chose you. Think about your salvation. Think about what God has given you. Think about your, the eternal life God has given you. Think about the fact that he forgave you of all your sins. Reflect on the fact that God remembers you. That even through the darkest days, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. He holds you in his hands. He leads you through the fire. And then think about his mercy. Remember his mercy. No matter how many times you blow it, no matter how many times you mess up, God's mercy is there and he picks you right back up. Now, I love this line in 
CC's song. I believe it's a chorus. It goes like this. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good to me. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. May you, as you reflect on God's goodness, may you also sing of the goodness of God. Let's close our time in prayer. I want you to think right now, just reflect. Wherever you're at, whether you're watching from home, whether you're under the tent, you can bow your heads, you can open your eyes, it doesn't matter. Will you think back, reflect back, not only on the last year, but how about your life? Think back on the goodness of God. Think about how he chose you. Think about how he's always remembered you. He's always been there for you. Through all those bad times, through all those good times, think about how every time you walked away from God, he was there to pick you up and, with his mercy. And maybe you're here today and you've yet to come to faith in him. You've yet to tell him that you believe in him. Well, if you're here today, if you're watching online, it's probably because God is drawing you. Yeah, he's drawing you. Why don't you say to him today, God, I believe. I believe in you. I believe that Jesus was your son. Tell him that. And it'll be the beginning of the rest of your life. It'll be the beginning of a blessed life because God will be in your life. Oh, Father, you have been so, so good to us. More than we can ever imagine, more than we'll ever know. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for always remembering us. Thank you for always being so merciful to us. Lord, we need you so bad. Father, as we think of your goodness, may we sing of your goodness because there is no one like you. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.